Today at Reader's Corner, Daniel Jurgen, author of The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. I'm Bob Kustra. Welcome to Reader's Corner. The world is being shaken by the collision of energy, climate change, and the clashing power of nations in a time of global crisis. Out of this tumult is emerging a new map of energy and geopolitics. In his new book, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations, global energy expert Daniel Jurgen takes a timely look at the confluence of the American shale revolution, the instability of world politics, and the future of oil in the Middle East. Dr. Jurgen examines daunting energy and geopolitical questions in an era of rising political turbulence and reveals the profound changes that lie ahead. Daniel Jurgen is a leading authority on energy, international politics, and economics. He received the Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money, and Power. He's a best-selling author of a number of works, and he has served on the U.S. Secretary of Energy Advisory Board under the last four presidents. Daniel Jurgen, welcome to Reader's Corner. Glad to join you in Reader's Corner. Well, I just mentioned uh, the shale revolution. Why don't we start there? You call it the rebalancing of geo politics. Uh, how has the shale revolution, that is hydraulic fracking, uh, how's that changed America's geopolitical position? Well, I think if you think back, roughly eight U.S. presidents from Richard Nixon through Barack Obama kept saying we want to make the U.S. energy independent, and it seemed to be a big joke for late night comedians. <laughs> uh, instead, uh, the shale revolution has actually made it happen, and it came as something of a surprise. It wasn't anticipated. But it's taken the United States from being the largest importer of oil in the world to being the largest producer of oil and also uh, the largest producer of natural gas. And it's in a sense, it's brought the U.S. in effect energy independence and greater security and it's rebalanced global politics right now. I mean, to just give one example, uh, Europe has now decided that rather than depend on Russian natural gas, it will depend significantly on LNG, which was liquefied natural gas coming from the United States, made from shale gas. So the natural gas uh, that you mentioned plays such a key role in the unfolding and now the war-torn relationship between Russia and Europe, uh, and especially Ukraine. Uh, as our listeners probably remember of just a few days ago, there was a report uh, that Nord Stream uh, had been sabotaged. Uh, I wonder if you could comment on on just how that had how that affects uh, the supply of energy to the European Union, uh, and what what do you think lies ahead there? Well, Nord Stream was a, a Russian pipeline that goes under the Baltic Sea uh, from Russia directly to Germany, and then they just built this Nord Stream two, except it was never commissioned because of uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And But it was a symbol of uh, Russian gas flowing to Europe, and Russia was providing almost 40% of Europe's uh, natural gas. Now that's, that's slowed to a trickle because Putin has cut back on the gas basically to um, punish uh, the Europeans for their support of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. He's using gas, whereas Russia and before that the Soviet Union always said we're a reliable supplier and we're not going to use energy as a weapon. He's using energy as a weapon. So uh, how practical is it for the European Union to make it through next winter without Russian gas uh, and also, I guess, without a massive shift in energy consumption? Any well, I think, it's, 
I mean, Europe's already headed into an economic recession. And this means like businesses, companies can't afford energy. Uh, industry is many factories are shutting down because the price is too high, not making fertilizer right now. So it's creating a shortage of fertilizer in the well, world, which will affect uh, food production. Uh, so right now, the question, they have gas that they put in storage, can they get through the winter without severe disruptions? A lot of that depends on the weather. If it's a cold winter, it's going to be very tough for them. And next winter will also be tough because there won't be any Russian natural gas. So it's very much uh, up in the air as to what happens now mm. between uh, as Europe heads into this mm. winter. And certainly if Europe has deep economic problems, we sure will experience them here in the United States. Is there any doubt among the experts of, of whom you are one, by the way, uh, as to just what caused this sabotage, the, the pipeline? I mean, there have been reports that the Russians probably did it for reasons that are related to Ukraine. Yeah, well, it's uh, clearly related to Ukraine. It's actually two pipelines because it's both the the older pipeline, which is Nord Stream, and then Nord Stream 2, which was a, the new one. Uh-huh. And most people think it is the Russians, that it happened to be on the same day that a new gas pipeline from Norway to Poland was going into effect. But some people say, well, does it make sense for the Russians? It's, you know, you shoot yeah. yourself in the foot. They yeah. shot themselves in their own pipeline. Do they ever want to use it again? Because now it raises questions about it. Yeah. But I think that no one's taken credit for it, but to take it as a Russian demonstration of uh, their ability to uh, knock out infrastructure in Europe as, a, as, the, as this war expands beyond Ukraine. We hear so much about wind and solar energy as the future in both America and Europe. I think you point out in your book that there's, there's such a, an incredible consensus of opinion in Europe when it comes to climate change and the need to do something about it and the need to shift to wind and solar. Uh, in America, it's, it's not so easy, uh, especially on the climate change front. Still lots of folks that need to be convinced of that, apparently. Um, I'm just wondering where this goes from here. How, and, it's, and even with, with the, the fracking in America, um, how quickly can the world convert or move toward uh, wind and solar? Let's just say alternatives in general, not just those. Well, I think that you have to look at the numbers. Uh, the world right now and the United States is 82% hydrocarbons. So we have a very big economy. The world economy is very big. You don't – normally energy transitions take a century or longer and they don't – the older energies remain here. Here you're trying to do something that's never been done before. Clearly, the cost of solar has come down tremendously. Winds come down. So they're highly you know, competitive. And most of the new electric generating capacity that will be put into the United States is wind and solar. But by the way, you need natural gas because wind doesn't blow all the time. You know, The sun yeah. doesn't shine all the time. You need natural gas. And and that's really for electricity. That's what you're replacing. So it isn't replacing transportation unless everybody has an electric car. And then this new Inflation Reduction Act that uh, got passed uh, and signed by the president certainly provides very big subsidies and incentives for more wind and solar. So it's going to grow. But there are also going to be constraints, including the fact that you need a lot of minerals like an electric car uses two and a half times more copper than a conventional car. So that uh, the kind of way I put it is, well, you'll have somewhat 
less reliance on big oil, as it's always called in the news, but more reliance on big shovels, which will be a lot of mining. Mm-hmm. to support the, the energy transition. I think the other thing with wind and solar, you need some big breakthroughs on batteries uh, so you can store the electricity. Uh, but I think the world's certainly going to move in that direction. But I think oil and, and natural gas are going to remain a big part of the energy mix for you know quite a long time. So it's going to be a more mixed energy system. Speaking of batteries, I believe you pointed out in your book that uh, we're going to have to find a place to put the ones we've used. Yeah, I guess that's stacking up, huh? Yeah, disposal. Yeah, so, you know, so all of these things, you know, you kind of address one problem, but you create other challenges at the same time, and they have to be managed, and are you going to recycle? How are you going to do it? Uh, So, you know, it's a a big deal to just change your whole energy system uh, in 25 years, which is what people are trying to do so the direction is clear but the scale and the timing and even you see now for instance germany big commitment to wind and solar but it's also now building five or bringing five floating facilities to receive liquefied natural gas from north america which they hadn't done before so and in fact germany's burning more coal right now so i think that energy transition renewables you know get a lot of additional momentum from this crisis but at the same time energy security comes back into play that you actually need conventional resources too well that's one thing that always occurs to me as i see neighbors drive by in their electric cars and you wonder how many more of those electric cars can the electricity market handle i mean is that a reasonable question to ask yeah there is and you know when do people do when do people charge up do you see a lot of electric cars driving by or just some electric cars? Uh, i see quite a few just i mean some would be the word i guess yeah sure but it's no question that you know sales are i too i live in washington i'm seeing a lot of you know a lot more electric cars now yeah they're you know very generous subsidies or incentives to people to buy them uh now norway's gone all out on electric cars although it's a big oil and gas producer but that's because a conventional car, the tax is about twice, you know, is equal to tax mm-hmm. of a new car is equal to the cost of the new car. But for an electric car, there's no tax. So, you know, it's a pretty good economic decision what mm-hmm. to do. But it also says that increasingly the components, the batteries have to be made in America or in countries that are friends of America. And that gets you back to the mining question because it's pretty hard to open a new mine in the United States. You're listening to Daniel Jurgen. He's the author of The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Well, I was going to mention that because you've addressed the environmental consequences to mining. Right here in Idaho, we've had uh, some issues with that and across the, the world, really. Uh, it's, it's one thing to say you're going to do it and then try to get the permitting for it, I guess, is another matter. Yeah, so that key word that you said is permitting. And over the last few months, that's been a big battle in in the U.S. Senate because it's hard to get anything permitted in the United States now, whether it's a natural gas pipeline, whether it's an offshore wind facility, and so trying to streamline it. And Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, I I sort of think if we had the kind of permitting system we have now in this country where challenges go on for decades sometimes – we, we would have lost World War II because we wouldn't have been able to build the oil pipelines from Texas to the East Coast that got us oil. And now 
you know, can take 10 or 15 years to just get the permits to build something. I have one other question along the geopolitical lines. I'll probably end up having a number of them. But but uh, as as you describe what's going on in Germany, their decision, their forced decision to move away from Russian gas, does Putin end up destroying his global energy export model? I mean, what country would ever want to sign a long-term obligation for imported energy now that one of its largest producers has proven so unreliable? Well, I think you've... Uh gotten exactly the point uh you know i describe in the new map about really give you the context for where this ukraine war came from and in very much involved energy and natural gas and uh europe was russia's big market and it's natural market because it's next door sure and it was a two-way trade because the europeans would sell a lot to the russians well i think putin has effectively just destroyed his main market so not a very good decision and he wants to reposition his gas to go to asia but that's going to take years to build new pipelines and his you know the europeans have just said we're done we don't want to import you know they have a ban on seaborne russian crude oil coming into europe on december 5th and two months later then russian diesel or gasoline uh so you know he's just destroyed his most important market and i think i i know that some of the people, economic people around Putin, uh, around the time of the start of the war said, why are you throwing away 22 years of economic progress, integration, advancement, you know, for this, for this war? And his reply, which really is reflected in, in what I write in, in the new map, his answer is that, you know, Ukraine is a threat, is an existential threat to uh, Russia because they believe the U.S. was somehow out to destroy Russia. And it's like, come on, come on, guys, this is ridiculous. Yeah. The U.S. is not focused on that at all. Uh, you, you've provoked it now. But um, but so what he's done from in terms of Russian national interests and economic interests and the interests of its populations is um, not only irrational but highly negative. But he's done it. Yeah, and those revenues are what's fueling his budget. So if he's going to conduct a war anywhere, uh, he's going to need revenues from someplace if he's not going to get them from. Right. A ban that's, you know, the U.S. is trying now to put a price cap on Russian oil to try, on the one hand, keep the oil flowing so you don't have a deficit of oil in the world market. But on the Mm -hmm. other hand, reduce his his revenues. And, you know, I, I think it is, you know, people are aware when you buy Russian oil, you're funding, also funding the war. Yeah. Let's move over to the Middle East, if we could. Uh, you mentioned in your book the launching of the IPO offering for Saudi uh, Ramco, And then on top of that, of course, since your book came out, there was the recent action by the Saudis to cut oil production. Um, this sure seems to have some impact now or later on geopolitics. I wonder if you could help us with that. Well, well that's interesting. As you tie the two things together, they kind of doing the public offering where you could buy stock in Aramco, which is, a, which is a Saudi oil company. It happens to be by far the largest oil company in the world, is saying we want to connect it and integrate it with the world. But here in the United States, this cutback that the OPEC Plus led by Saudi Arabia announced uh, 
that uh, to reduce oil supplies. They've said their explanation is they're doing it because we're headed into a recession. Demand will go down. Uh, but I'll tell you, the reaction in Washington is very different. It was seen as, uh, as one of the people in the administration said a, a hostile act. And that was whether it was to affect the election to kind of cooperate with the Russians um, to prevent a price cap, which might then be put on their oil. I mean, there are all these other motives. And so right now, uh, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are just speaking past each other. And it's certainly been very poorly received in the United States, especially uh, with a president who is very, 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 very worried about gasoline prices because prices, if they go up, will affect how people vote because people confront those, you know, gasoline prices every day, unless they're one of those people who are driving by you in an electric car. (laughs) Right. Well, there were certainly plenty of folks who were uh, questioned the fist bump uh, that the president gave the Saudi ruler uh, when he visited recently. uh, And I assume the fist bump was directly related to trying to keep the Saudis in line on on this oil issue and the price of it. I wonder if you could comment on uh, the the fact that that the United States is really not ready to take on the Saudi ruler for his um, killing of uh, Khashoggi, I wonder if if you could comment on why that is the connection that the Saudis give the United States with Iran. Well, I think that you know you've gotten now into the really into the world of geopolitics where Biden went to Saudi Arabia clearly for w- one reason was oil please increase production. It was also saying, you know, the U.S. national interest coincides with Saudi interests, particularly in terms of containing Iran as it becomes weeks away from having a nuclear weapon capability. And that uh, that Saudi Arabia is a key element in stability in the Middle East. And so, you know, reflected, you know, what they call realpolitik, you know, what's your national interest, what's the interest? Because remember, he'd been very critical of Saudi Arabia during the primary and had refused to talk to the crown prince. And uh, the crown prince has you know, been very criticized the United States for the awful murder, gruesome murder of Khashoggi, who was a journalist. But, you know, Biden was saying, well, we, you know, we have larger interests that we have to do. But I think that the president took this decision to cut production to the degree they have as an affront kind of uh, dissing him after he made the effort. And he had to spend some domestic political capital to make that trip to Saudi Arabia because there are a lot of people uh, in the Democratic Party uh, and around him who criticized that trip. So he sort of went out there and said, this is a national interest. And then he got this. And I imagine that the public first public words from the White House were disappointed. But I bet within the White House, uh, the words they used were much more blunt than disappointed. (laughs) Sure, no doubt about that. You point out that there's been a historic opening of diplomatic relations between the United Arab Emirates and Israel. How does energy politics cause such a breakthrough? Well, it's really the breakthrough which came about during the Trump administration in terms of diplomatic relations between the United Arab Emirates and Israel, which is the UAE is a country next to Saudi Arabia. And the reason for that was the common interest in containing Iran. And secondly, a belief that the U.S. is 
backing away from the Middle East and so that those two countries have common strategic objectives and so they need to kind of work together to fill the vacuum of a U.S. that is less interested in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia certainly has gotten a lot closer to diplomatic relations with Israel. It isn't there yet and I think that probably this tension on oil sets it back but the signals are that those two countries are prepared to um, well, they have an informal dialogue now and to have more formal connections. And it's interesting because Saudi Arabia is building this big modern city on the Red Sea that's not so far from Israel, actually. So I think Saudi Arabia and Israel both see it if they can find their way to do it, that they need to um, have diplomatic relations. I mean, right now, it's said there are many flights a day from Israel to Dubai, which is in the United Arab Emirates, and vice versa. And that was just not imaginable three years ago. So that was a pretty significant breakthrough. I mean, the other interest was those two countries said, you know, by trading with each other, it will benefit both of them economically. I'm Bob Kustra, host of Reader's Corner. You're listening to Daniel Jurgen today. He's talking about the new map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. His paperback edition has a new epilogue as well. So, again, I'm uh, traveling fast here in this interview. We're going to go over to the South China Sea, uh, which finds itself in news reports lately. And, uh, of course, it's about U.S. and Chinese warships in the region. Share with us the energy side of this issue when it comes to who travels the waters of the China Sea. In fact, I think you put an addendum to your paperback version called The Four Ghosts Who Haunt the South China Sea. Yeah, and I did that because – you know, there were two things that I w- warned about in the book. I mean, I have the positive things, as we we're saying, about wind and solar, energy transition, electric cars, you know, including, if I can digress for a second, this wonderful story <laughs> of how Tesla came about, which was a lunch. I'm now digressing, so pardon me for a No, go right ahead. In, um, in 2003, uh, Elon Musk, already a successful entrepreneur, was having lunch with a young man named J.B. Straubel, and J.B. Straubel was trying to convince Musk to do an electric airplane. He said, I'm not interested. And then J.B. said, well, electric car. And Musk said, you know, I might be interested in that. And J.B. eventually went to work and was the chief technology officer for Tesla for 15 years. And a few years ago, Elon Musk uh, said, uh, if, you know, if we hadn't had that lunch, there might not be a Tesla. And maybe today there wouldn't be electric cars on the road. But the reason I digress is that because there are the positive things, but there's also in the book, you know, even the first edition, of course, now I have a new edition, but I said that Ukraine was the issue that was going to blow up between Russia and the West. It was just, that's where the trends were pointing. Right. I didn't know an eight month war or however long it is, but you could see it was going to blow up because Putin refused to recognize that Ukraine was a separate country that actually was a country. He just wouldn't recognize it. And so that was the fulcrum. So the other thing that, as I was writing the book, is I could see already, you know, over the last several years, how the U.S. and China are going from cooperation to confrontation. And it's become more acute in recent weeks. And Taiwan is one big issue. A second issue is the South China Sea, which most people say, well, South China Sea, well, it's the most important body of water in the world in some ways, because like, 35, 40%, something like that of world trade passes through it. And it's very significant to China because China, unlike the United States, has not had a shale revolution. It imports 75% of its oil and a substantial part of that oil flows through the South China Sea. 
So the Chinese have said the South China Sea is actually, it's a very big body of water, is, uh, is historically ours. And everybody else says, no, it isn't. It's high seas. It's freedom of navigation. And nobody else accepts the Chinese interpretation, but the Chinese have militarized it, put bases there. And that's the place where you mentioned where U.S. and Chinese ships, warships have come close to colliding. And the reason I talked about the four ghosts was kind of to give a framework historically for thinking about it as kind of a warning that we don't want to find ourselves as I said, there are optimistic things in my book, and they're pessimistic. Pessimistic. We don't want to find ourselves with China as uh, in a situation like Britain and Germany before the First World War. And uh, the South China Sea is one of the places where, quote, an accident could happen, close quote, that would lead to an unexpected escalation. And so that's why I focused on it. So, And the significance from an energy point of view is not the resources under the Ch South China Sea, but it's China's dependence on oil flowing through it. And they know the lessons of World War II, where one of the main successful U.S. strategies was interdict and destroy the flow of oil from Southeast Asia to China during the Second World War. And by the end of the Second World War, and I wrote about this in my book, The Prize, uh, one reason for the kamikaze pilots is they didn't have enough fuel for return flights anyway. So that uh, the Chinese are very aware of those lessons of history. And so, uh, you know, I think it's important. I try and lay out in the book for people to understand how this new map of confrontation between China and the United States developed, where we went from a very cooperative framework where, you know, it was great Chinese watched American basketball on TV. And, you know, we were much more connected. Who knew that, you know, our medicines or our masks and everything for health came from China. Uh, but to the state now where, uh, where each side is putting restrictions on the other, uh, and trying to break these very deep and strong economic links on the basis that we have become great power competitors. Mm. So there's the immediate drama of the war in Ukraine with Russia which has nuclear weapons, and then the bigger drama of U.S.-Chinese relations in the 21st century. This battle of, uh, th that's going on almost daily between China and the United States when it comes to being the global power reminds me of the Belt and Road Initiative where China is just throwing billions of dollars toward infrastructure and energy investment. At the end of one of your chapters, you say, it's not, not a prediction, I suppose, but I think you say that these nations, and I'm, I'm thinking of Africa in particular, because I've certainly, I certainly read a lot about uh, the role that China is playing in Africa, uh, that these nations will perhaps more than likely attach themselves to a rising China rather than America, because of America's inconstant and receding um, actions. Could you explain that? Yeah, I think that's true. The Chinese have a very definite strategy to build up economic links around the world. There are any number of countries. Uh, I was just with somebody from Indonesia this morning who's saying, we have a strategic relationship with the United States, but China is our biggest market for our goods. And you hear that around the world, and certainly true in Africa. And China's been spending money to build up infrastructure to assure themselves that they have copper and cobalt mm -hmm. and lithium and oil and all these other supplies. And they're done not by private companies, by but state companies, so they don't really worry about shareholder return and things like that, and um, really building up these links. And so I hear from a lot of different countries 
because I've been traveling around the world, we don't want to choose between the United States and China because we have a really important relationship with the United States, but China's our biggest market. And with the African countries, they feel that China has paid more attention to them and has invested substantially in their economies. Now, there is somewhat of a backlash because the Chinese often, instead of using local labor, send in their own labor, and there's uh, you know opposition to it. But China has built up a, you know, a formidable economic position around the world. And I was talking yesterday to a businessman from Japan who's very tied into policy, public policy there. And he was saying, you know, in Japan, we are very worried about China and its ambitions. But by the way, 30% of our exports go to China. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very complex equation. I have one final question that um, is not about geopolitics, perhaps, but we, we hear hydrogen mentioned often as one of the alternative fuels of the future. I heard a CEO recently of a hydrogen company say that it'll never be used for cars, but more likely heavy industry. Uh, I wonder if you could comment on your take of hydrogen's future as the world in the United States in particular seeks to find alternatives. You're right. It's uh – for heavy industry sort of replacing natural gas for heat and so forth. It's interesting to me, a couple of years, if I went back three or four years ago when I'd give a speech, at the end somebody would say, well, what about hydrogen? And I'd say, well, what about hydrogen? <laughs> but then about two years ago or so, it really changed. And there's now been, both by entrepreneurial companies coming from outside and by oil and gas companies, who are the main people who use hydrogen today, but they use it in their oil refineries or gets used for chemicals for making fertilizer and so forth to say, well, maybe you can build up, you know, as part of the energy transition, a substantial hydrogen business. And the European Union talks about getting 20 to 25% of its energy by 2050 from hydrogen. Mm -hmm. I would say that it seems to me there's a lot of excitement about it. The new Inflation Reduction Act has a lot of money for hydrogen as it does for wind and solar and so forth. But I think I would say it's still kind of early days. I would say that the person you were talking to, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think in terms of alternatives to gasoline-powered cars, uh, all the bets are on electricity. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only people really interested in hydrogen have been the Japanese who have been interested in it for a long time, primarily. So I think it really is industrial applications as a gas that will replace another gas called natural gas mm-hmm. is kind of where it's, it's big market would be maybe used for electric generation as well. So um, a lot of money, a lot of efforts going into it. And, uh, you know, I would never bet against uh, innovation. There's always going to be surprises. The shale revolution was a surprise. The falling cost of, uh, of solar was a surprise. Maybe hydrogen will be a surprise. <laughs> or maybe something that we don't even see right now. Well, we thank you very much for uh, writing the book. Uh, This has been great. The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations by Daniel Juergen. It has a new epilogue if you get the paperback copy. Uh, Daniel Juergen, thanks so much for joining us today at Reader's Corner. I'm really pleased to, uh, to be here at Reader's Corner, and thank you for the invitation. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner.